Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Marlon Peterson about his new book, Bird Uncaged, an Abolitionist Freedom Song. Marlon Peterson is the principal of the presidential group Social Enterprises. He is the host of the Decarcerated Podcast, a senior Atlantic Institute fellow for racial equity, a civil society fellow of the Aspen Leadership Network, and a 2015 recipient of the Soros Justice Fellowship. Ebony Magazine has named him one of America's 100 most inspiring leaders in the black community. His TED Talk, Am I Not Human? A Call for Criminal Justice Reform, has over 1.2 million views. And he's the author of the recently released book we are here to discuss today, Bird Uncaged, an Abolitionist Freedom Song. Great to talk to you again, Marlon. We talked about doing something like this a few years ago, and I'm glad it finally happened. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's happening at the right time. Yeah, for sure. I always ask the same first question. It's kind of the comic book origin story question. How did you get from wherever you started in life to where you were doing whatever you came on the podcast to discuss? But since your book is the story of your life in a lot of ways, uh, maybe just to give everyone an idea of your journey, can you summarize where the book starts, where it goes, and where it ends? Yeah, thank you for that. That's a very. I like that question. The book starts... In Brooklyn, actually, the book starts in Trinidad, uh, the Caribbean Trinidad, um, and then eventually goes to Brooklyn, New York. And it ends in very ways. It ends in different parts of the world because um, the perspective of it, it, it uh, I get to an end of the book is based largely on like my being able to experience different parts of the world and experiencing issues of incarceration or witnessing uh, issues of incarceration and, and, and trauma in different parts of the world. So that's pretty much where it ends. There is a lot of trauma in this book, and I know you're doing a lot of interviews and probably a book tour right pretty soon. How are you handling kind of continuously talking about these really serious and personal issues? I know I struggle with this myself sometimes, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners do as well. What are your thoughts on kind of maintaining your own wellness while doing this work? I mean, I take breaks from it. I mean, I have, uh, first of all, you know, just like you, you and I, you know, we have a similar background and as you just mentioned. So, I mean, it's not new to be talking about traumatic experiences for me. I think though that obviously this book is, it's it's in such great detail. I don't think I've ever required that of myself, but I take breaks from it. I don't, I don't, I actually don't pay attention as much to like issues within the field of criminal justice, like right now. Um, I actually like take a step away from it a little bit when, when, because I need to breathe from it a little bit more. I need to be more intentional about breathing away from it um, because I'm talking about so many things that's so heavy. That's a part of it. So I don't want to like take on more. Um, and, you know, I, I and that's pretty much I'm, right now. I'm in the beginning stages of this whole book tour thing. You know, the book just came out April 13th yesterday. So um, I'm just uh, adjusting to it right now. So even before this, like I have another I, I had you know, things I had to do, engagement I had to do earlier this morning and came home and actually just took a nap. It was like very draining. And I have you and I have another one after you, right? Um, but I'm also doing this for other people. You know I mean? I also understand that this is, like I didn't write this book just from like, cause I just wanted to talk about myself. I understood that is this, this, every, every page of this book can be related, relatable to other people. So I also understand that me talking about it is also giving life to other people. 
I think in a lot of books, uh, you know, I think we're all familiar with kind of a normal narrative where there's lots of just kind of regular characters, human beings. There's a lot of non-traditional characters in your book. One of them is religion. Can you talk about where you started as a Jehovah's Witness and kind of where you are now, how that evolution or what that evolution has been? Wow. You know, I really appreciate that question because one of the chapters is called um, Losing My Religion. Um yeah, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and in many ways, that up, that that foundation is why I'm able to do, you know, speak publicly and try and interact with people who may not really care about what I got to say. <laughs> um, that's you know, advocacy is pretty much doing that, right? You got to speak to people about things and to people who probably don't care about what you have to say. And Jehovah's Witnesses get door slammed in their face a lot, <laughs> and I was getting door slammed in my face since I was a little child, so I'm accustomed to it. Um, but also. I mean, religion has played, has played a role, a pivotal role in my life, not only because I was raised as such, but um, I think that I, I had struggled as a teenager with believing that the religion was the right thing for me because I didn't believe the religion was protecting me. I mean, I, you know, I didn't believe God was protecting me. Let me put be more specific. But then again, when I went inside, you know, the religion is what I gravitated back to, right? And I was facing a life sentence and, you know, I didn't see, I mean, it was very real, it wasn't a joke. Like they weren't bluffing with me. You know, some people say, you know, yeah, they charge you. Like they weren't bluffing. Trust me when I say that. Even I, district attorney now will probably say this to this day. Will say the same thing. So, um, I was desperate, and I, I don't want to say I just got back to religion because I was desperate, but it providing a level of guidance for me. And I don't mean just it. it I, I, I was. 19 when I went in and I was I remember like for the first couple of years I was always placed in housing units with people and I didn't know how to adjust to prison I didn't know prison I didn't you know I had never I might, I was arrested once before but I spent a couple hours in, in jail but I didn't you know was never housed in jail so it in many ways religion helped me like mature in some ways and understand how to interact with people in a way that is mutually harm, uh, mutually mutually beneficial and definitely not harmful to one of us um I'm no longer a religious person, um, but I definitely uh, appreciate a lot of the teachings in terms of just public speaking that I've gotten and also just some values I've gotten from it, from that, uh, from that stage of my life. Uh, I myself am a recovering musician and another kind of non-traditional character in the book is the steel pan. Uh, can mm-hmm. you can you talk about that as well as how central music is to your story and your history? So far, you are the best interview I've had. So I'm just <laughs> writing that this question. <laughs> I love it. Uh, there's nuance and, and texture to these questions. Yeah, um, the steel pan instrument of, Trina, of you know, the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I still play it, actually. I played a six bass in the summertime. We have a band here, and we've won competitions. But during my incarceration, prior to my incarceration stage, I played, you know, I would play pan during the summers with different um, bands. And it was one of the places where I felt the safest. I would have to leave my block or my neighborhood to go practice. And in many ways, that like gave me a sense of peace going to play the instrument. Um, and, and I avoided a lot of things um, uh, in my own block or in my own neighborhood when I was away playing the steel pen. So when I was inside, I didn't have access to any of that sort of stuff. But, you know, I, I, you know, I, every once in a while, depending on what jail I was in, I would be able to get a station, a radio station that might play the steel pen or whatnot, or just from memory. It's amazing what music can do in terms of how it can get like lodged into your brain. And I can just remember or, and like hear the, the, some of the music that we used to play in my head and even dance to it in my cell or whatnot. You know, another thing that gave me a sense of peace while I was away um, is one of the reasons why I still play 
to this day. And lastly, I want to say, you know, I, you know, in the TED talk, I speak about the steel pan because, I, you know, I use the analogy that you know the steel pan created in a the neighborhood in a time where people looked down upon people who played the steel pan. Right, my father was one of the you know, he had his, he played steel pan as a young man in, in Trinidad and people looked down on him because they thought it was like from the ghetto and, it's just, you know, these people who are, who aren't worthy of anything. But yet, so these people created an instrument, the only acoustic instrument invented in the 20th century in the world. And that instrument is now everywhere in the world, right? And in so many ways, I think it's indicative of people who've had, who come from some communities just like mine, so who've had the carceral experience like mine, where people think this or worthless, there's nothing that can be that can come of us, and yet still we can create amazing things for all people to benefit from. And I still remember when I was a kid. I mean, it's such a joyful music. I I remember ro- walking around New York City, and you'd run into people playing the steel pan. It was always uh, I I remember it like it was yesterday, and I was just a little kid. It's uh, I really uh, resonated with that part of the book. Uh, another kind of uh, maybe even a more underlying character in the book that only gets mentioned a few times, but I think is very important is Maya Angelou. Could you talk a little bit about her influence too? You did your research. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do read the books. (laughs) And this is wonderful. Um, Maya Angelou. So we've all been, I mean, I don't say, I don't want to make the assumption that everyone who's listening has ever, yeah, I want to make the assumption. If you haven't heard about Maya Angelou, you need to sort of check yourself and look in the mirror (laughs) and ask yourself why. Right. But, you know, for me, I had definitely heard about my answer before I was incarcerated, mainly from a like a, a topical way. Right. Not anything too in-depth about her life. And inside, I ended up reading her book. Actually, I read her book, uh, her first book, How to, um, uh, excuse me, um, I have a, a, a Cage Bird Sings. I read her book when I was actually keep locked. And keep locked um, is not it's not the box quite. It's not, you know, you're not in a dry cell, but you are locked in your cell. You can't come out before only you only come out for one hour a day. Um, and that is to not even one hour a day. You, you know, you could come out and take a shower and that sort of thing every couple of days. And I was keep locked for 45 days and the book somehow got in my possession. I don't know the story of it, but a book got into my possession and it just felt connected to it. Right? I felt really connected to her story, even though she was a, you know, black girl growing up in, uh, at rural Alabama back in the day. I'm a guy growing up in Brooklyn, and, you know, 20th, 21st, 20th century at that time, the 21st century, definitely two played different places, but I connected with it. And I think the metaphor of like the cage bird sings, like I was in a cage. And at that point, I remember being very, just in a deeply dark place. Right. And, you know, I mean, being in jail is one thing, but being in jail within jail is a whole nother thing. Um, and I think it just resonated with me. I think her ability to way in which she use, she understands she, you know, she went mute for a period of time after there was an incident that happened in her family that she blamed, you know, blamed herself for. Um, and, but she ended up like reading everything in that time when she was mute in those years when she went mute. And it, in so many ways, it, it's what made her that Maya Angelou that we know today. The other part of it that, you know, what I love about Maya, because I've since then, obviously, I've studied, I've become a fan of hers deeply, probably even stalked her through YouTube, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that she lived a full life. Like she was, people know her for being this great poet, but she was also a soca singer, right? She was a dancer. She traveled and lived in Ghana for years. Like she did, she, she worked with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Right. You know, she just lived such a full life. And I think that's the sort of life that I, I want to I've wanted to live. I want to live a full life where I do the work that, that I care about, 
but I'm also get to have many iterations of myself. I get to have multiple expressions of myself. Like, you know, we say it all the time, right? Like incarceration doesn't have to define us. I, you know that, we know that, right? And we want to encourage people to also see that. But I think we also want to encourage people who have had these experiences like us to see that. Like your life doesn't have, not only your life in terms of how people view you, but you also get to expand how and what, what, what you appreciate about the world outside the carceral space. I don't think because we went to jail, our mind is always supposed to be connected to jail, right? I don't think we ever supposed to forget about the people there, right? And the experiences we had there, but everybody doesn't have to be an advocate. That's fine, right? Everybody doesn't have to be an activist and that's fine. Everybody doesn't have to have a podcast about prison. That's fine. Cause there are those of us who choose to do that. But even for those of us who choose to do that, we get to like other things and have different, you know, if you want to become a, a farmer or if you want to become a, I don't know, a music, a musician again, right? Yeah. Like you get to do that. And I, and I think that, you know, that's, that's, that's why we came out of prison to be able to do whatever that we, we, whatever our hearts desire. That's such an important point there. So I was, I was just talking to uh, Marie Shama a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, about how sometimes it could be exhausting where every single conversation you're, you're in seems to have to go back through the exact same territory. You know, it, sometimes it is good to be other things for a while. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. important because you also got to get space to other people. I remember being a younger person inside and, you know, there'd be the old time, you know, <laughs> I can't believe it. I mean, like, the old timers are like my age now. Right. But, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you need people to also pr- allow you younger folks space to step into what they need to step in. I think sometimes people who've been in the game for a long time or who've been like doing this sort of work that you and I do all these years. You know, sometimes it's OK to be like, all right, you know, somebody else can do it because they also experience in- incarceration differently. Like, I know this. I know this, this thing about incarceration that no uh, it never will change based on whether you were in jail in the 60s, 80s, or, you know, 21st century. And something that, you know, the pain, the trauma, the harm, all that is still very much a part of the fabric of incarceration. But also nowadays, people got access to tablets. I, I didn't have, I didn't, you know, I can, if you had anything remote, anything like other than the little see-through Walkman or radio that you had, he was going to the box. Now people get tablets. <laughs> I'm not saying like, good for them but i'm saying they're also experiencing incarceration differently and their experience between being incarcerated and the way they're able to experience the outside world is a little bit different yeah it's also got to be pretty surprising to some of the old old guys in there who had never seen a computer at all and now they can get a tablet and stuff like that i imagine i mean this happens to some of the old people out here <laughs> 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 i had a friend yesterday who's my age yesterday is like yo how i um how i how i how i send a friend request on facebook He's my age. And I mean, he's out here. He 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 in due prison. <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, there's also us out here. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of serious stuff in this book, and we're gonna talk about that for sure. But I gotta ask one lighter question at least. And uh that's because, you know, this is a real big part of my life too. Basketball seems to be a big character in the oh. book. Uh it's a big part of, of, of my life. It was a big tar- part of my time in prison. Uh do you still play? Oh, why you gotta ask me? Do I still play, man? I, I want to play. But I, <laughs> I don't play I anywhere near as much as I used to. I've got a bad knee too. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh man, I'm mad about that. Um, so I, I haven't actually haven't played basketball maybe in a good year and a half now. Um, because I have a you know mild tear in my ACL on my right knee, so that that stopped me. That's the only thing that stopped me. Like, I would still be playing, but in a book, I mean, definitely for the first couple of years of my incarceration, like basketball was the closest thing to being, 
I mean, I think about, so here's the thing, like when you're in prison, at least for me, there was ways in which I could, I, in my mind, I was creating a, like measures of freedom for myself, right? And only I, only people, I'm the only, only person that understood why I was so enthralled in it. So listening to steel pan music or listening to music on the, my walking was one way that took me out of there. A second way that took me out of prison was when I would write to myself, I have journals. And the third way I would take myself out of prison is when we had played basketball. And when I played basketball, um, and there'd be times when nobody else would go, just before I went, I was sent to the state prison. So in the city jail, you know, you, you know, you go to the, to the yard, you know, by housing unit, by housing unit, the whole jail doesn't go to the, to the yard at the same time. And oftentimes people, nobody else would go to the yard to play ball, particularly if it was cold in the winter time and it had snow. And I would go, I would go up there in the yard, I would move the snow to the side and I would dribble a basketball and it would be me and world and I would I would literally be having the time and for what it's worth the time of my life in the sense of imagining I'm not there and then as soon as you know as soon as it was time for that hour wreck to be done you know I was like oh, prison yeah and, it does um, it does kind of transport you though because you you know basketball's basketball you know I mean you know if you're on a court you know you do, you do feel different than if you're in at least it was for me too I agree with you yeah basketball is pivotal you know it still is I mean I guess you know, it doesn't play its huge role in my life, at least in terms of interacting with it. I mean, I still watch it. Obviously, I mean, very much. So I'm very much engaged to it. And my dream, my dream, Josh, was just between me. I'm putting it out there. So my dream is to have courtside seats to the Knicks. I don't know where I'm going to get that type of money, but like, that's a fantasy of mine. <laughs> Maybe you can get Spike Lee to loan you his every once in a while or whatever. I don't know. Or did he get knocked out? I can't remember if he got, uh, I know Dolan was mad at him for a while, but. Well, here's the thing about Spike Lee is that the first time I ever wrote publicly, I think I might have put this in a book. You did. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you were first time I ever wrote publicly, I was in the seventh grade going into eighth grade. And I was a part of this summer program that Spike Lee sponsored and Nike sponsored that allowed kids to be like, you know, citizen journalists. And I would interview people. And here's the thing. I didn't I don't think I put this in a book. But one of the places, one of the places that they had as visitors kids was a jail. Oh, it's As in the book. Jail. Yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, you say that your uh, your teacher took you there. Yeah, and it took us there. And you know, only thing I remember was some man saying that you know, you come to jail, you don't get cut. You don't get cut in your face or something. That's only I don't. You know, and the reason why I think I probably speak about it in the way that I do in the book is because I want to show that like that. Like I remember that story, but that didn't deter me from doing things, right? I, you know, it's sort of like just scared straight. It's sort of that thing. But we were like, we weren't kids who were seen as delinquents we were kids who were as i said citizen journalists so but they still use the same scare straight scheme for us right in terms of like you know it, it did nothing for me it didn't it, all i just remember that only thing that stuck in my head is that when i when i went to jail years later it was like geez I, you know i want to be in a situation where i get cut right but like it was oh i have to cut someone but it was never like a determined i didn't learn a lesson from that visit <laughs> just say that yeah no i mean i think uh, there's this kind of assumption that that stuff somehow change you know and maybe it does for some people but i i don't know uh so kind of a final non-traditional character i think and this is kind of a you know i i'm reaching a little bit here but i do think it's pretty present throughout the book is secrecy uh where have you come to in terms of kind of how you try to be present in terms of truth telling mask wearing emotional honesty that kind of stuff because you've obviously made a long journey there yeah yeah definitely a long journey i mean i'm definitely I'm definitely much better at that in terms of unmasking. I'm more of myself. I'm more comfortable with myself. I'm more comfortable with um, being honest with myself, uh, right? You know, 
first chapter of the book is called Hiding, right? And I speak about, in so many ways, the genesis of my hiding. And that's why it starts in Trinidad. I mean, I wasn't born in Trinidad. My parents were. But, you know, I, I speak to the genesis of it, of like why hiding was a thing that in so many ways, you know, taking a quote out of the book, it was part of the cages that I created, a cage that I created for myself. But it was also, you know, influenced by, you know, external things that were happening outside of me and around me. Um, but so as I've, you know, as I've grown, as I've evolved, matured, gotten older, I've realized that, you know, some of these masks, all the masks that I've worn or I felt committed to have harmed me more than they've helped me. And I also realized that, you know, there were certain masks that everybody wears in prison, right? I mean, it's the way you survive, right? You wear some type of mask in prison and it's necessary in some ways, right? Um, yeah, it keeps but those you, masks keeps keeps you, you safe, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Keeps you safe, right? And, and, but also like those masks, because, you know, I spent a decade there, right? So it became part of my character in terms of like the masks that I wore. So I had to unmask that and it took time, right? So I'm home 11 years now. And I didn't realize some of the things I was carrying were still with me, right? Because I was still able to flourish professionally, right? After, you know, I, you know, you read the bios, a lot of things I've been able to do since I've been home. But in that, one of the things I was sort of like leave, not realized up until maybe pretty much in the process of writing this book, like how some I was wearing some of those sort of masks, really emotional masks that was harming not only me, but was harming people who were coming close to me, right? Because um, I was still in so many ways protecting myself, my innermost self from people because, you know, that's what that's what got me through prison for the most part. I mean, I definitely connected with people and but it was, you know, I wasn't I connect with people in prison, but not in a way that I think that they that was very that showed my vulnerability. People were I, I connect with people in a way where people felt that they can share their vulnerability with, me, vulnerability with me, but I didn't have to give anything back. It was sort of just like, you know, one sided. And I realized particularly and I'm so real. This is what I'm going to, Joshua. I'm talking about an intimate space, like relationships, um, even familiar, like close family. Like it has to be reciprocal in so many ways. I was preventing people from getting to, to the deepest parts of me. Uh, your book addresses some really tough aspects of growing up as a young man in America, toxic masculinity, emphasizing toughness before looking for help, uh, healing from trauma. I know this is a big question, but what do we as a society get wrong about how we raise young boys and men from your perspective? Um, we get a lot wrong. I think we miss a lot of cues. I don't think we listen to boy. I mean, I want to say this for this, this could apply to, you know, anybody within the gender spectrum, right? But I definitely think about boys where, you know, particularly boys in certain communities. So I think about a DMX. It's the best way to think about it, right? For years, I'm talking about just in terms of how we knew him as a as an artist, he was expressing himself, right? He was expressing, he was expressing himself about his childhood. And obviously it was music to us and some of us understood it, some of us didn't. But like we were dancing to it, but it was he was literally telling us about all the things he was dealing with. And it was in a brash way. It was an aggressive way. I mean, he was barking like he was a dog. You know, he he was literally barking these stories out. And I think that we think about boys, we're raised to be the super t- tough, macho. You know, we don't cry and all that sort of nonsense. And we're raised like that. We're conditioned like that from infancy. You know, you, the first time a boy cries, you tell him, you know, he falls on the floor. Don't cry. I, you know, we've heard that story a million times, but what we don't understand is like when you ingrain that into a young person from infancy, they learn not only to hold emotions, but when they we also they also are trained to, to they also train that like the way that they're heard is sort of by being loud, by being super aggressive and brash. 
they're still expressing themselves, but young boys are still expressing themselves, but it comes across as maybe a, too aggressive. And I don't think we are listening really. We're not listening to the little DMX and a lot of our little boys, right? And for me, I kind of like bringing myself into the story. Like in my household, I wasn't necessarily raised to be this tough, all that sort of stuff, but I was also raised in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, right? I was also raised in the schools I went to. So I picked on some of those traits, right? And so the ways that I wanted to express myself People couldn't really relate to it when I attempted to, or in a few times I attempted to. So what did I do? Just kept it to myself. Cause that's the other thing we know, right? You don't cry when you tell a young person, you know, you're not supposed to cry. You tell them they're not supposed to express themselves. You're not supposed to tell what's going on with you, what's bothering you, or what in some way, if you're crying for joy, you're not supposed to tell them what, why you're happy. And I'm saying that as I got older, when young boys get older, when they're like, you know, in school to even elementary school to definitely all the way up to high school, at least high school age, they're now conditioned to hold that stuff in. I'm not, I'm going to hold it in and it's going to come out in an aggressive way, right? And, and, you know, so I just, you know, that's a roundabout way of saying it, but I think ultimately we need to do a better job at listening to little black boys and allow little black boys to be little black boys and then stop seeing little black boys as um, big black men. Or, and, that, and that's not only, you know, that's not only a racial thing, right? I don't want to, because that happens with little, you know, little Latino, little and boys too, right? It's that sort of ingraining that they have to be tough or hold it in. And that doesn't help anybody. You also address uh, kind of personal struggles with uh, appearance, the pressure to fit in, societal standards of what's expected, sexual insecurity, come in groups with inappropriate behaviors. Uh, obviously, I've had to make a lot of that journey myself too. Uh, can you talk about where you are now and what you think the answers for you are in terms of healthy relationships and kind of appropriate? How would you come to how have you come to grips with all that? I mean, it's very brave yeah, the way you, you talk about it in the book, and I just want to make sure that people uh, hear, you know, kind of where you are on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I had to recognize was that there were behaviors that these behaviors were wrong. Right. I mean, I, in so many ways, a lot of things that, you know, in what I had spoke about in a book, I mean, it was seemingly wrong even at the time, but it also just like what everybody was doing. And my mind is like, it's not that wrong. You know, it may not be nice, but it's, you know, that's how boys do. Right. And I think as, you know, growing up and but not only growing up, I think the process of writing this book and yes, also evolving as a person, I've had to first acknowledge that how, how, how harmful my behavior was and how harmful my thinking was. And so like now, I mean, obviously I don't engage, I want to say obviously because people, your audience don't know me like that. You know, I've grown to not, not, I haven't grown to under, to forget like how I thought, but I understand there's no utility in how I thought anymore. Like I no longer need that thinking, not only because it's harmful to other people, but because, or women in particular, but it's harmful to me. Right. Like I, it's all, when I'm when I'm disrespecting other folk, other women or women in various ways in my life, I'm disrespecting myself. You know what I mean? Or what I believe myself to be or where I want to be, where I want to go. You know, so, I mean, the reckoning that I've, I've, I've had to do, particularly with this book, because, you know, in the parts that you're sort of referring to in the book, like, I, you know, I'm going through, you know, I'm literally writing, sitting out on my computer, writing, you know, those passages or those sentences and like shaking my head. I'm writing it. I'm shaking my head. I'm like, oh my god, Ma. I'm Like, oh my god. You know what I mean? And you know, I think once again, you know, you know, sometimes getting to where I've gotten requires work. It requires really tough personal work and therapy too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, that I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, personal work, and that's and the thing about it is that that can't be done in front of people. You can't do that sort of. You can't. You can't. Uh, you can't perform this sort of work. It just has to be done with you. 
right? It's not for performance purposes. Because if you're doing it for performance purposes, that obviously it's not real. You know what I mean? And, and I want to say, it's not like you do the work. I've done the work and I'm like, I'm, I have arrived and like I'm a perfect man now, right? It requires me, because I'm, I've become aware of where I, what, what I used to do and how I used to think, those, things, those thoughts are still in me. Right, it's in me. So, but the only difference now is that I'm much more conscious of it, so that I interrupt it before it becomes an action or or or, or something that comes out of my mouth. Uh, I think for most of our lives, and I don't think we're that dissimilar in age. We've heard the excuse that even if we weren't a perfect country, we were still making progress. But I think over the last five years, uh, some of the masses have been ripped off of that, and we have seen kind of anything but progress when it comes to, for instance, racism or structural racism. Uh, I think a very big part of your book is a story of race in America. Do you want to talk about kind of that aspect of your book? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, in this book. I obviously speak a lot about my life and my personal life and, uh, you know, a lot of things that in my journey I also, I, but I'm also keenly aware that my journey is not in a vacuum that, you know, my experience is what a lot of people in my neighborhood or communities like mine's experience. So that pushed me to think about, well, why is it that so many of us have these type of response, uh, uh, reactions and these experiences? Why is it that when I'm in prison, so many people look like me and they're all young? And why is why is the majority of people in who who are in this jail with me or in the prison with me in my age group? You know, within a you know, within a 10-year age group, right? Why is that happening? So it made me look deeper into that beyond just like what we do and the interpersonal harm, but the harm in which is done to particularly black and brown folks in America. So in the book, like I'm hard on myself, but I'm also hard on the country, right? I, because I understand that. Like when you see violence in Chicago or, or Crown Heights or Inglewood or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, urban center you want to think about in America. Um, it's important for us to also understand, like these 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 urban centers where this violence is happening is not divorced from where like there's state violence happening in our communities. Right. I speak about, you know, police stopping me as a young child. Right. With my even younger nephew, who's at the time like a baby, eight years old. Right. Um, and for no reason other than to harass us. I, and and to me, you know, that incident in of itself, like as a young kid, I was like, oh wow, well, I see, oh, I'm a crook. Like I, I just, I was coming from steel pan practice in a pair of shorts in the summertime with my nephew, a pair of shorts and a, and a t-shirt. My nephew was eight, right? And, and but I know I reflect back on that moment. I understood like I had the message that I got was not that police were trying to protect the streets. The message that I got was that oh, I'm a I'm a problem. Like I could potentially be, a, I'm a criminal. Even I ain't got, even I'm not doing anything because at that point in my life, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't outside hanging out, doing any of that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and so I don't let go on race in America. Right. And particularly towards the end of the book, you know, I speak about because it was written during the time of uh, the uprisings last summer throughout the country. A lot of my work, even before this book, obviously, has been in the intersection of police violence, state violence and race. That's where a lot of my work has been. Right. Um, and I and I wanted to make sure that people understand that the work to having black and brown folks in our communities are not just born to hurt and harm each other, that we're influenced by a lot of things. We're definitely influenced by the way we inf- we inform each other at young ages and maybe in a harmful way, but also very much informed by the way state and racism plays a role in our lives. Right. I mean, I have a, 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 a cross burning on the corner. You know what I mean? We might not have a tree with some, which, uh, uh, what you call it, a noose hanging from it around our corner, on, 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 down the block or whatnot. But we still see like the residues of it. We still feel it. We can watch it on the news. 
And we know that we're the ones who are still somewhat like on the chopping blocks, right? And that, and that impact is like we are, in so many ways, we understand, even in our subconscious, that we're, our skin color, our complexion, where we live is a threat to other people. Even if we have never done anything to anybody physically, we understand that we get that messaging. You know what I mean? I wanted to sort of really be clear about that. Like that messaging is a part of the problem while you see a huge part of the problem, a major part of the problem of why we see what's happening in, in neighborhoods like Mons or Inglewood or Chicago or, 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 you know, Jackson, Mississippi or what have you. So it's interesting because I think with you and me who've been through the system, you know, we see an increase in dysfunction or crime or whatever you want to call it in a community. And our first thought is we need to do something to try to address, you know, the, the, the problem in that community. And I think when other people see an increase in crime, the first thing they think is we need more arrests. We need more incarceration. You know, and I think both of us do a lot of work to try to break that down kind of so and I think your book does a good job of that, but you know, what, what, what would you, what do you say back to that now? You know, I mean, what do you, when so, you know, I think you just had one good answer to it, but what, 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 you know, when, when someone comes at you with, well, you know, there's more crime, we got to protect the community. Let's put more people away. Why is that so wrong? Well, one, because history, you know, if you are in the data collection world, right, if you're in that <laughs> data collection world, um, policing, Increased policing does not reduce crime. It, if you're in a data collection world, right, you can look at that. Increased incarceration does not reduce crime. If you're just in the data collection world, that's just saying that, right? Just for those people who are, you know, act, actually increases crime. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and I'm just, just want to just go to that for a second, right? In the data space, but aside from the data, because, you know, the stories are what we really love and love to hear. When we hear things about like these shootings and these uh, like right now in the middle of a, a trial in the same city where a police officer just shot another person, right? Uh, killed another person. And if we think like that, that's that's policing too. It may not be people, I mean, you know, police, uh, police leaders, what have you may not say, or law enforcement leaders may not say, well, that's bad. Yeah, whatever. That is part of policing. We have to sort of accept that police and killing black people is also a part of it. There's never been a time in American history where police and police didn't kill black people. It just it just doesn't exist. So at this point, we got to say, well, this is a part of policing, first of all, right? It just is. It may not. It may some people may say it's bad. We may be trying to create new policies to try to you know reduce it, whatever. But it's also just very much a part of it, right? It's by it's a byproduct of policing, and because that's a byproduct of policing, that is also part of the violence. That is in our communities, right? I don't want to. Do, I don't want to divorce the the violence that we commit against ourselves from the violence that police commit towards us. It's all violence. It's all violence. The gunshots are the same way. The the knee on the neck and all that sort of stuff. It's all the same thing. It's the same messaging that everyone is getting. So if anything, policing. I don't. I don't want to. So here's because this is not a correlative fact, right? Policing. You know, more police will. I mean, you said like more police will commit will lead to more crime. I don't know how true that is factually, but I know do know that all I, I what I will say is that I know that more policing does not reduce crime. That's what I definitely know. It just does not. What reduces you know harmful behaviors is first is an addressing of why those harmful behaviors are happening in certain communities, communities, like why poverty is the way it is in certain areas, and then sort of being able to allocate resources to other things, to other other social services in our community, to look at way edu how our education systems are in certain communities and how can we not only 
fund them more, but make sure that they're more uh, uh, relevant to the to the 21st century conditions of the people who are attending these schools, right? Like those are the things that lead to that lead to safer communities. The thing that led even me being in the work the work that I do now, right? And now I'm here talking to you on decarceration nation. It wasn't so much like or the way I articulate myself now. It wasn't like I learned this in jail. Right. I didn't learn this in jail. I may have understood the context for the for how to use my words in terms of what field, but it, I didn't learn this in jail. What prevented me or what got me from being this 19-year-old kid who was hurt and harmed, who was willing to hurt and harm other people, like jail didn't do anything to me about that. There was a different intervention, which I speak about in a book where somebody reached out to me and helped me be a part of young people's lives while I was in prison. That was an intervention. I needed people, I needed, I needed my self-esteem to be built. I needed that. That's what I needed. And prison does nothing to build self-esteem. Neither do police. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, you know, one thing, uh, you know, I noticed that was pretty interesting uh, was that, you know, while you talked about there being a lot of violence around you in prisons, in some way, just reading the book, it seems like you were safer in some ways in prison than you had been in your original neighborhood where you were traumatized a great deal as a young man. Uh what do you think it says that in some ways you could be safe that a, a young black man could be safer in prison than he was in his own neighborhood in a way? You know, um, just last night at the book launch um, that I had with Dr. Nadia Lopez, the teacher, the person I'm referring to, who was a teacher who reached into me to ask me to, you know, be able to write some words to her students at the time. She read a letter that I wrote to a student in 2005. I had never seen, I mean, you write a letter, you don't get a photocopy of the letter you write when you're in prison. You write it and it's there, it's gone. So I had never seen the letters that I had wrote to any of the kids, you know, since I wrote it. And she read it. And in, in this particular letter, a student asked me literally, almost verbatim, do you think it's safer being in jail than it is out here? And, she, and then she referred to like, you know, stray shots and, you know, all the things that could happen in her neighborhood in Fort Greene, Brooklyn at the time. And it made me rethink about it, right? Rethink it. I think, you know, I think about Eddie Ellis, right? Who's the mentor of mine who passed away uh, several years ago, uh, you know, he's one of the people that authored the, the non-traditional approach to criminal and social justice. You know, he would say he that there's of, no such thing. A lot of really good work on language, too. And, yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, I mean, it's why we call people, that's why we use incarcerated person or whatnot. We don't say just convict and all that sort of stuff. But, like, you know, one of the things that he had said, what he would say in, it was that there are no prison problems, there are only community problems, right? And in it, you know, he was trying to just draw 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 us in to understand that what we're seeing in prisons are just in, just a small example of what's happening outside, right? I mean, it's just concentrated harm in prisons, right? Where it's the same thing happening, but, you know, it's just more people in more space, right? Um, so I don't, here's the thing. I don't think that, I think it's sad when we're in a side, this is what I'll answer. I think that when we live in a society where people question whether it's safe to be in jail for a black person that is outside, I just really want to say like, that's, that. That is telling on our society that it might be safe for us to be in a cage against our will and for us to be outside, right? That's just an indictment of society. Now, do I think it's never better to be in a cage? It's never to be in better than be in prison, right? And in some ways, you know, I don't want to say that I was safer. I just understood how to interact with people differently, right? I just really understood, how to, you know, I sort of forced myself to understand how to interact with people differently, right? And and everybody in prison is walking around scared. Right. And I don't think people see that. Also, everybody's walking around scared. Everybody knows the stories that they heard about prison before they came to prison. Now, people just mask it better. Right. And people become better purveyors of harm and other things. But everybody is scared in there. 
Well, and, I, and, and, and we all see everything that's happening around us all the time. It's not like there's there's definitely a lot of violence in prison too. I just yeah, there's absolutely a lot of violence. Like I don't ever, you know, in this book, like I don't spend a lot of time speaking about the violence in prison, right? I mean, I spent a decade, so I've seen a lot of violence in prison, right? But I also saw a lot of violence in my neighborhood, right? I, I saw my first violent attack when I was in. Well, I was first violently attacked when I was in the first grade. The first time I ever seen somebody get cut on their face, I was in third in the third grade, and some fourth graders who did it to each other. You know what I mean? You know, here's the thing: it's I don't think there's a place in America necessarily that is really super safe, just in general terms, for black people, right? You know, and sadly, not even in prison because you know we don't hear the stories. But gosh, imagine we had cameras like <laughs> like openly had cameras in prison, right? How many times you would see police or uh, COs beating down people inside? Like that, like we, that happens. It, it's sort of, sort of like, well, you're in prison, you know, sort of just kind of like, that's how it should be, right? You know, officers beat you up, right? But just imagine they had cameras inside. I mean, and I say openly, right? Openly had cameras inside showing these sort of things. I don't think that prison is safe for, for anybody, but I also just really want to say that I think it's really sad we're in a society where people are questioning whether a jail is better than freedom. Definitely said. Um, You say towards the end of the book that I was 19 years old when I went away. My freedom would be forever connected to the death of innocent people. I knew I'd always be considered an ex-con. How many times would I have to prove to people that I was no longer that 19-year-old boy? Uh, I struggle with this a lot, too, and we talked about it a little bit earlier. Have you come to any conclusions kind of about how to live beyond your crime, but also kind of to live with your crime? Yeah, yeah. I mean, healing is a personal thing, right? Atonement, you know, uh, is a is a personal thing, right? And similar to like how we, you know, spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, my the way I, you know, interacted and thought about, you know, women and, you know, and those type of, and the way I interacted as a child, and where I'm at now, you know, that's a very personal process in terms of reckoning with myself and then moving beyond it, right? And moving beyond it, I need to move beyond it. If I don't move beyond it, I can't be a productive soul, right? So for me, like, I've definitely healed beyond from that 19-year-old boy, right? And I, and, and I mean, and I want you to say this, I am healing still. Like, that's why, this is a process, right? But I no longer walk around with the guilt on my shoulder. I always say guilt is an empty, is not is an unhealthy emotion. So I know it, it does no one any good if I'm walking around with a weight on my shoulder. It does no one. It doesn't do even in the, in the, in the in the spectrum of a uh, you know the harm party versus the person who was harmed. I mean uh, the person who did committed the harm. The person holding person someone holding guilt does nothing to to help either one move beyond that situation. So we think about it like in a restorative justice conversation, like guilt is there, but you got to be able to heal beyond the guilt before you can be able to hear how somebody else's, how, how you can deal with somebody else's pain. It does no one any good. You know, so I no longer like walk with that, that sort of stuff anymore. Um, but I do also understand, like I'm sensitive about it though. Right? I'm not flippant about it. I'm not flippant about the fact that I am on decarceration nation now. I got a test. I do all that, you know, all the, as you read in my bio, I've been able to accomplish things. I'm also not flippant about understanding that, like, you know, I've been able to do these things, but it's also connected to a very tragic thing. I'm very aware of that, right? Um, but I also don't carry it in a way that's harmful. 
to me or anybody else. I'm in a way in which I'm understanding why and how I got to where I was at. And also trying to, of course, like we all said, we try to prevent other people from you know walking in our shoes. You know, um, and that's important to me. I mean, that's that's me sort of getting past it, finding a way not only to help me survive or heal and thrive, but also understanding that like part of reason why I went through it is so that other people don't have to go through it. Uh, one of probably maybe my I think this is probably my favorite part of the book, you know, is the way throughout that you tell the story of your parents, uh, how different they both were, but also how important they both are and have been in your life. I thought it was really beautiful. Would you like to say anything more about them here now? Yeah, I love them to death. You know, my father, um, my first thought with him is that, you know, my father for the first two and a half years of my incarceration, I was, you know, I was remanded. I wasn't sentenced for almost three years. I spent most of the, you know, five years in a uh, city jail. And he visited me every single Friday, every Friday, right? Every Friday he visited me. And if he couldn't visit for any reason, he would arrange for somebody else to come, right? Um, and my father now has dementia, you know, and, you know, at this point he has no idea what I'm doing. Right? And, it, you know, that's it hurts. It hurts a lot, Joshua, really, you know, that, you know, he can't fully appreciate the the, the fruits of his support of me and his love for me. Like he can't because, you know, his, his brain is not allowing him to. You know, So it hurts. But he's also been a life giver to me. And then my mother, you know, I, I talk about like she there's a promo I have on my Twitter page. I think it's pinned on my Twitter page. You know, when I was inside, I had wrote a sticky note to my mother. I wrote a little pink sticky note. And I think that and put in the envelope wasn't even a letter. It was a sticky note that said, um, dear mommy, one day I'm going to make you proud of me. Just watch and see or just wait and see. And then she has that little sticky notes. When I remember when I came home from prison and I walked into her bedroom, she has a mirror in her bedroom and she had the sticky note pasted on her mirror. And I, you know, I had forgotten about it by that time because I had sent to her years before I had came home. And like now to see not only now, but because the book is just I want to say it's just the book. One of the many things that I've made her proud, where I've fulfilled that promise to her. You know, I, you know, I've, I hurt my mother a lot, right? I write a very long piece about my mother in this book and me understanding the pain that I've caused her. But I also now understand I've, caused, I've also caused a lot of joy for her. You know what I mean? And, you know, and thankfully she has all her mental faculties to appreciate it. But, you know, in so many ways, my parents and my family, you know, my brother, sister, my nephew, like those are the people, they were my reentry program. Like people talk about reentry, it wasn't no program. I didn't go to anybody's program, right? To, you know, to to make me better. And I'm not trying to discount the value of reentry programming. I'm saying for me, the, the, the reentry programming for me, and I, I understand there's a privilege in saying this because not everyone has a stable family to come home to, right? So I understand the privilege in saying it, but I but acknowledging that privilege and that and that and that blessing, like they were my reentry program coming not only during incarceration but definitely uh, post incarceration. Um, I'm going to borrow something from one of my favorite television shows. I mean, you went through a lot as a kid. If you could kind of go back and talk to a young Marlon, what would you tell him now after you've been through this long journey and all the things that have happened? I would tell him that you don't deserve any of the things that just happened. Like what's happened, what's happened to you is wrong. And I think, you know, growing as a child, I didn't really, I didn't understand like what was ha- the things that were happening was being like these things are wrong. These things should not be happening to me. Right? I thought it was sort of like you know this is just how it is. This is how it's supposed to be. Or in some ways, I would put put myself in a position of like, well, it's my fault. I shouldn't have walked down that block. 
while Shanna did that thing, right? Shanna went to that, you know, Shanna went to that hallway, walked walk down that hallway in school, or, you know, those sort of things. And I, I put myself, I blame myself for being harmed, right? And I think, you know, one thing I would tell my little, my younger self, I mean, the book opens up in very, literally saying, Dear Marlo, me writing to myself, is that, you know, things that happened to you were wrong. Because when you, when, when I think the value and understanding that something happened to you is wrong, right? It gives you, at least, it can allow you to speak about it. And it can allow you to, it can push you to compel you to seek help, right? Because I didn't think these things were wrong. I didn't think it shouldn't, like, I, you know, I, I, could, could, because of the way I sort of um, experienced those moments when I was a young, young person as not necessarily being wrong and, and, and unfair, I just figured I should just keep it to myself. Okay, this, this is what happens to everybody. So why should I talk about it, right? What's, what's going to make me any special, any different? You know, and that hurt me a lot, right? And I just kept it to myself and, and it, you know, it, it showed up in different ways, you know? So I would definitely tell my younger version of myself that, you know, what happened to you is wrong. Um, and that, you know, you know, in the book, right, I opened literally about my lips, right? Having big black lips and, you know, you know, I was like, you know, I, I use that. It was very real where I, I was ashamed of it, but it was also in so many ways metaphorically where I just felt like I needed to hide. Right, the opening chapter is hide, right? And I think I would tell a younger version of myself that you shouldn't hide anything about you, not the size of your lips or not how smart you are or 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 whatever. You're not supposed to, or your talkativeness, don't hide that. Because those are the things that make you, you, Marlo. A lot of our brothers and sisters come back from incarceration and try to publish books. Now that you are a successful published author, what advice would you give to them about publishing? Oh, first of all, this book, I first, okay, I'll say this. I actually, um, Somebody else I was actually having this conversation with last night who just came home not too long ago. Um, write. First of all, write. Write. Because, you know, some of the, um, some of the, the, the words or passages from this book were in so many ways written before I started writing this book. Right. I have journals from inside, but also I kept, you know, it was journaling after incarceration. So I had a, a lot of information to go back and look to and be like, how can I put this in and how to explain this a little bit better? So just write. That's the first thing I'm going to say. And I wrote a lot uh, before this, right? You know, I, I would write inside. I would interview other guys inside. Um, and, I, and, and that's how I got better at the craft. And I came home, I would use this craft that I like to speak about issues of incarceration, right? I like to say I'm probably a writer first than anything else. You know what I mean, so write. That's the first thing I would do. Um, and the other thing is that I think there are a lot, the publishing game, you know, there's, there's two options. You can publish it yourself and you could you know, seek uh, a whole publishing setup, right? And I have a whole public, you know, a publisher and all that, editor and all that sort of jazz. Um, and those are two options are available to you. You do your research and figure out what's best, what best fits you. Um, but it doesn't matter which route you choose. If you're not writing, like you're just not actively writing things, whether you're writing it for public consumption or you're just writing it to keep to yourself or share it to your friends and family. If you're not writing um, now, that's your practice. If you're not practicing now, don't think that you could easily just write a book tomorrow, right? It takes a lot of practice. Um, but if you're a writer and you're somebody who is formerly incarcerated or you're incarcerated now, like the best advice I could tell you is to write now. Like, you know, that's a double, that's a double entendre, right? But right now, right now, right now, because that's the way that you get yourself ready for the longest. I mean, I wrote a 200 and some odd page book. I've never written anything that long before, but I can also say that I, I had so much to like, I have stacks of writings in my, in my house, stacks of writings from, from 
incarceration and post-incarceration that I was able to use as research. And, and it was my practice. So just like if you're a ball player, you know what they tell you. You got to stay in the gym. You That's true. Stay in the gym. Uh, this year, I'm asking people if there are any, speaking of books, there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others aside from your own. Do you have any other favorites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of uh, like looking at uh, them now. So one hour uh, is um, uh, Mariam Kaba's um, new book. I, I think, I think, I think that her new book is one that you should definitely, you know, we do this till we get free. Um, I think that's one good, uh, one really good book. Um, and I think I'm gonna just shout out uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, who I'm gonna be in conversation with a little bit later. He has two books, right? His most recent book is is, uh, is a book of poems called Felon, which I, you know. I think you should check out, but also his first, his previous one, which is Bastards of the Reagan Era, um, I think is another one you should check out too. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm trying, you know, we all know that it is a huge library of books that I think are out there. But I also want to say this too, actually, actually, I want to rebut one thing I just said. <laughs> That's okay. how my mind works. Um, there aren't enough of us writing these books. Right? I want to say there aren't enough of us who've had experience writing these books. I want to say that like, and, and we... And I'm talking about the whole gamut of people who've been incarcerated, not just the folks who have been unfairly convicted, innocent folks, but the folks who have been who committed a crime were convicted. Like, I think those people, us, that's me. Right. Like we need to be writing these books. All of us need to be writing this experience because this is documentation of this atrocity in this country at this moment in time. You know, when you have two million people in, a, in prisons, you know, when your investment in prison is more bigger than your investment in anything, in anything in, in terms of social programming and support for these communities, this is a flashpoint in human history. And we need to document this. And I think people who have had experience need to document it, and particularly even people who are currently incarcerated. I don't know, the publishing game has gone to the place where it's, it's, able, where it's able to do that, where, where it's open, and understands the importance of getting currently incarcerated authors on the books, right? I'm an advocate for that, like getting currently incarcerated authors on the books. Um, but I think that's what we need, that's where we need to go to. And I also encourage this part, right? For people who are, you know, who have had our experiences currently formerly incarcerated, to also look and be in how they can infiltrate other parts of the publishing industry. Right. Because not only writing a book, but I've learned and I'm learning right now. But it's also about like there, there are gatekeepers, there are gatekeepers who are in, in the publishing game. Right. And a lot of them don't understand us and may say, well, I don't think you should talk about it like that. And you really think that's, you know, they don't understand our experiences. So I will also encourage people who who want to be in the publishing, in the, in the writing game to also look at other ways you can infiltrate this publishing industry. As an editor, we need more. If we need form incarcerated editors. We need form incarcerated editors. And that's another place I think we can go in and capture. So that's my advice. Try to see how you can be a form incarcerated editor. Um, you're, you're famously a podcast host, too. Uh, so I figure I'll ask you if there's anything you want to ask me this time. That's where uh, in, in this oh, space. Wow. Okay, definitely. That's what, uh, um, I mean, why haven't you stopped incarceration nation? Why haven't you stopped? This podcast. Why haven't you had over, you know, about a hundred, over a hundred episodes, right? Yeah, yeah. Am I correct? This, this yeah. Why haven't you been like, well, I did a hundred. You know, let me do something else now. <laughs> uh, I think mostly because there still seems to be interest, and there's so many more people's stories to tell, and you know, people are putting out new. You know, a lot of what I try to do is kind of policy deep dives, and so people are putting out new research all the time. And I want to get the education out there to folks so that they can speak back to 
kind of the bad things that people are saying, the untrue things that people are saying about why uh, we should maintain the same thing we've been doing for the last 50 years and kind of, you know, the, well, the classic definition of insanity, you know, continuing to do the same thing over and over and over, even though it's failing, uh, you know. And so I think that's really why I do it. It's just to keep, you know, kind of to say, here's the news, you know, but the news that they don't usually print, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, you know, everything fit to be print in the New York Times doesn't get into the New York Times. So you're catching everything that really needs to be recorded, I guess. Um, I guess can I ask one more real quick one? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Um, cause I, used to, I had debated this too as a podcaster. Um, how do you feel about interviewing people who are who come to the criminal justice space in a different way? Like they don't, you know. I think about like a, the Koch brothers. Like, would you? How do you feel about interviewing like one of the Koch brothers on the incarceration nation? Do you feel like you want to give them that platform, or are you or are you journalistic in the en- endeavor? I actually have inter- interviewed Mark, uh, one, one of the senior VPs on my podcast. And it was, uh, you know, I so much of the work that we try to do in legislatures is impossible to do without bipartisanship because, you know, red states aren't going to move. Uh, you know, blue blue policies aren't going to move red states. You got to have people on both sides. And so, you know. I kind of go along the line of, you know, try to work with everyone who's trying to actually move the ball forward in our area, you know, where they're not trying to make systems bigger or worse. And even if they are, I'm not going to work with them on that stuff, but the stuff that we can work together on, I'm going to try to get done. Because in the end result, what I care about is people coming home and people getting free. Uh, And so it's not really necessarily as much about the other people as it is getting things done and getting information out there uh, for me, you know, and I understand, I totally understand why other people don't make that choice. And I certainly don't blame them for that. Uh, But I'll pretty much talk to anyone. And if someone is going to start saying stuff that is problematic, hopefully I've checked that I checked them on that at the time would be my, you know, that'd be the the way I probably look at it. Um, Hope that makes sense. Uh, I always ask the same last question, which is, what did I mess up? What questions should I have asked but did not? Oh, no, you did pretty good, Joshua. You did good. I, I was trying to, I was giving all the praise in the beginning. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I, I mean, you're obviously great at this. <laughs> so I don't think anything you left. I mean, we could stay here, obviously, and talk probably for another hour or two, right? So, I mean, I don't, I can always come up with like, what's another question you could ask? But I don't think that's necessary. I think we covered bases. I like the fact that, you know, it, it was a a layered conversation that wasn't just policy or criminal justice wonky, but like you asked about, particularly as a, you know, I'm here as a, now as an author, you spoke to, you, sp- you asked questions that allowed me to elicit parts of my biography or my life that aren't necessarily like always attached to crime, criminal or justice sort of stuff, right? And I think that's important. I think that's super important because when we are like in this work, whether even when you're in the policy space, when I'm in a policy hat space, what moves what moves policy ultimately are the stories. That's what ultimately moves policy, right? How you can get people to realize that something matters. And I think with the way you started off was like you, you in so many ways you help not so much about why I mattered, but more so about why understanding the the depths of people matters. Uh, how can people best find your book? Uh, yeah, so um, my, you go on my website, marlinpeterson.com, and you'll have all the ways in which you can purchase the book. 
So I'll say you can start there. It's available everywhere. Of course, I encourage you to buy from a local bookstore. And, you know, Indie Bound, I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D is one of the ways you can find out where, what local bookstores are near you. And it's there and it's available. Um, and also, I did the audio book. So, you know, you can down, you can, once again, go to my website. You find out how to purchase the audio book. And you can hear my voice um, recounting my uh, reading the Reading Bird on Occasion Abolitionist Freedom Song. Thanks so much for doing this, Marlon. I really appreciate it. It's great to get to talk to you here. Finally happened. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Talk to you later, brother. All right then. Bye. And now, my take. I have to say, I've rarely read a more brave book than Marlon's book. Marlon takes on strong topics like toxic masculinity, sexual assault, being raised male in a world that raises men poorly, and about feeling constantly vulnerable and constantly traumatized as a young African-American male in an often brutal country. He exposes himself, his weaknesses, his flaws, and his powerful victories, all in order to let people really see how our systems of economics, education, religion, transportation, toxic masculinity, and our social safety nets frequently fail kids just trying to make it to adulthood alive. It takes an incredible amount of courage to put yourself out there like Marlon did. It shows how big his heart is and how much he cares about making the world a better place. But I think it's also important to remember that it isn't just that it takes courage. We should also be thanking Marlon for putting himself and his story at risk in the public eye and for being willing to relive that trauma publicly. Thank you, Marlon Peterson. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a a five-star review from iTunes or just add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts and and our Facebook images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.